Hey cuties, how y'all doing? Um, it's me, Darlene, your host. I just wanted to warn you up at the top that the sound is a little off in this episode. I don't think it's too egregious, but in the first few seconds, there is a little bit of reverb that I just wanted to warn you about and that it does stop pretty quickly. Um, I know, I'm humiliated. Humiliated. Anyway, um, rate, review, subscribe. It really helps. And also, please join us on Patreon because I am about to start a recap series on The Anna Nicole Show. It won't be like these episodes where I'm talking to guests. They will be written, researched, narrated. So kind of a hybrid of my storytelling episodes and my my talkies, as I like to call them. Okay, um, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Late Do You Remember This, where, you know, we talk about Hollywood's best worst decade, the early 2000s. And right now, uh, we have another episode where we recap the Girls Next Door, the television masterpiece. Um, And today I'm joined with Claire Parker. She is a comic podcaster. She is one of the hosts of Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Um, Claire, how are you? I am so good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for doing this. I we, we were discussing via email that you have just recently read Holly's book, Kendra's book, and Isabella St. James's book. So this is very fresh well, in your mind. It's funny because even though I've read all three of those books and I literally read Isabella's book last week, it has been a very long time since I've actually seen an episode of The Girls Next Door. So I felt like I had a lot of like book smarts, but no street smarts. I had been... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I felt like a very yes. academic lens to look at the girls next door and then to live it. I was like, oh, I forgot what it was like to watch almost nothing. <laughs> so what was your experience of the girls next door when it was on? Like, were you a big fan? Um, oh my God. Who was your girl if you were? Okay. So first and foremost, huge fan. I was obsessed with the show. I, it is crazy to think that there was an entire generation of women out there who were like raised on the girls next door. And yeah. Something I know from the books is that it was very important to them to have that family-friendly, like, facade, that that was a big part of the entire Playboy image, is that these are not, these are not the normal girls who take clothes off. Like, these are, like, your first-grade teacher who you had a crush on, or the girl you grew up with, like, the girl next door, and she just happens to also be a kinky little freak. And so (laughs) it's just because I, like, fully bought into the happy, family-friendly bullshit that they were spewing. And then I was obsessed with it. I was a Kendra because I was also sporty. I thought she was the prettiest one. And looking back, she was by far the most janked in the face one. I've never, <laughs> that might be well, too. Have, have you um, like looked at taking a, taking a gander at the later seasons? Um, no, but I've seen a lot of photos of her because like I would do a lot of uh, photo drops of her. Yeah. I mean, this episode, so FYI guys, we are um, recapping the season one, episode 12, um, where they all go to Manhattan. Um, but in this episode, yeah, I mean, I feel like Kendra's is never like in any of the um, confessionals. She's not put together at all. Um, she definitely looks better in, in later seasons and like other episodes. But this episode, she's really also in one of the episodes or in one of the um, confessionals. She has green contact lenses in (laughs) 
So I think that could contribute. (laughs) She also cannot finish a sentence. She truly is one of the less interesting people to watch comment on things. I was shocked actually to see that Bridget dominated the confessional time in this episode. Yeah, I think in the earlier seasons, because I've noticed that too with other episodes, and I do think from her broadcast journalism background, she was probably maybe like the easiest person for the producers to get to just like parrot back that makes the sense. dialogue that or the the commentary that they wanted. Whereas I can't imagine Kendra being able to do it. Kendra can't parrot her own thoughts. Kendra would start a sentence where there'd be a very obvious conclusion. At one point, I think she tries to make the joke that if somebody's rude to her, she's going to like swing at them. And she gets as far as like, if they say something rude, I'll say, come over here. And, uh, and then she like, can't figure out what would come next in her own fantasy. I'm like, you're not recounting a true tale, Kendra. Literally say any verb now. <laughs> and she can't. The reality is Kendra was doing hard drugs during her brain's most formative years. Yes. And she's at this point in the show, she's only probably been off drugs for like a couple years. I feel like her her brain still needed um, some time to like air yes. out. Yes, we need to wrink that thing dry, lay it in the sun. Oh, oh my God, before we get too far, though, talking about growing up on the um, on the girls next door, I wanted to share this one story of, I remember, I don't, I want to say I was in seventh grade, but maybe I was as late as ninth grade, but I was watching the girls next door and my mom came in and she turned it off and she goes, you are not watching that show. This is a feminist household. And I remember looking at her and being like, no, it's not. I hate feminism. I love the girls next door. God, I hope it was seventh grade. Ninth grade is too late to be that dumb. But I remember being like so mad at her and I was like, I cannot believe you're judging these people. I love this show. They're just a family. (laughs) And I have to say like, mom, I see your point. Yeah. <laughs> you might have been right. I'm sorry I was the way I was. I was just a horrible teenager. <laughs> I I actually don't remember what my what my parents' thoughts were on. I think I was completely allowed to watch it because I feel like my parents were kind of into it. <laughs> People were really fooled. I have a friend who's like a deep Christian, like comes from a family where you get married a virgin at 22. And she's like, I would watch it with my mom. Somehow they really did like slip it in a spoonful of sugar. I don't know how they tricked all of America, but we were all there. Like these, this is the new normal. Like We, we accepted them before we accepted gays. We were like, it's if you so is a better husband than two gay men would be parents, which is like, really goes to show how the patriarchy has its hold on this country. <laughs> We see this later um, in the episode where, you know, they're talking to press about their their brand new um, cover of Playboy where they're, the girls are on the cover. And all of these people are asking them, you know, such hard-hitting, not hard-hitting questions, yeah. but like pers- <laughs> personal questions. And Holly says in her book, too, like, why wasn't anyone asking are we okay? I mean, especially for Kendra, like a 19 year old. Yeah. It's like, um, this is uh, objectively weird that you are dating an 80 year old. But I think people really didn't believe that they all had sex. I think that is like a, some sort of 
blinders people put on to to tell themselves like, no, 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 that those people don't have sex. I mean, maybe Holly and him. Holly and him have sex, but not the others. It's fine. So that's such an interesting because it's something that comes up a lot in the books is that if you read Holly's book, her and I think also Kendra were absolutely sure that people believed them when they said they didn't have sex with Hef. And so something <laughs> I think is ironic and like bizarre is I don't even think Hef wanted to be having sex with them. I think he felt he needed to do it less for his own pleasure and more to keep up the image of his playboy lifestyle. Because I know Holly says as soon as the show picked up, they stopped having sex. As soon as the playboy brand was back on top with this show, he no longer needed the sexual like validation of the girls because he had the monetary and fame validation of the playboy brand being big again. And so I do think it's funny that he was, I think he was having sex with them more to like live up to this image people had of him as a playboy but then the girls were all sure that nobody thought they were having sex. And so when they reveal in the book that they're having sex with him, they think it's like this giant reveal. And I couldn't, <laughs> and it's hard for me to remember what I thought before I read the books because now I've been reading their books for like a year. But I'm just like, yeah, of course you're having sex with him. You were like living, like that was, you were all kind of like concubines almost. Like that was your job was to have sex with this man. He was only having sex with them. So people would think he was having sex with them. They thought nobody thought they were having sex with him. They were secretly having sex with him. It was like, who was the sex for? I don't understand. It was definitely for him to uphold an image. I also think it was some sort of, I think he really had like legit OCD, not just like, Oh, so like, Oh oh my God, I'm so OCD. Like I have to have my apartment clean. Not like Khloe Kardashian's OCD (laughs) where your cookies are just aesthetic. (laughs) Yes. I think he had potentially like really legit OCD. And I kind of wonder because he, he didn't always do these like sex routines where it's regimented two days a week. Um, and this is how we do it. Like we have a group of people, everybody gets their two minutes, their two minute ride. Mm -hmm. That wasn't how he always had, he always had group sex and stuff, but it wasn't so regimented. I kind of wonder if when he got older, that sort of routine just had to be adopted because he didn't have the same sex drive. And he also like had to take Viagra. So it was like, we need to start it regimented and then it just caught on where it's like no I have to do this if I stop doing my weekly sex nights then I am an old man yeah and and he loves a routine I really could see that he loves a routine and it reminds me of this is like a real deep cut movie fact but when Dan Aykroyd played Britney Spears's father in Crossroads Mm. apparently his role was that of like a former Navy guy. So something he would do is every day before filming, he would do a full, full sleeve tattoo on himself of like Navy style (laughs) tattoos that were then never, ever revealed in the film. That was just something he did for himself to keep keep in character. And I almost feel like that's what these sex parties were for Hef. Like he needed to be going through the motions to like maintain, you know what I mean? Fake it till you make it. Yeah. It's the work I did off screen. <laughs> that he's he's very he's very method. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He went to the Lee Strasberg School of Acting, and every day he would wake up and say, "Today I am a playboy." <laughs> I, yeah, I I think a big part of the sex nights being done away with is he had somewhere else to um, channel feeling young and 
and yes. relevant again. And I'm sure by this point, it was such a welcome thing because he was so old. Can you imagine like having to saddle up to that twice a week at like 84? I also think the older he got, the more work had to be done to keep the women quote unquote loyal mm-hmm. or like going through the motions of being loyal, like publicly seeming loyal. And I'm, I can't imagine it's not humiliating. Like obviously he's an egotistic narcissistic maniac who's like allowed himself to live in this delusional bubble that he's created. But um, Isabella St. James talks a lot about how when he would have sex with these girls, he had to take Viagra at the exact right minute. If he didn't take plan it perfectly, he couldn't get hard that night and nobody could have sex. Also that he frequently would lose his erection in between girls or while girls were on top of him. And so Holly would have to come in and her big thing was with orally, she would get him hard again. And I just have to think that can't be fun for him. No. And this sex was only fun for him. Like not one girl ever had a good time having sex or got to any sort of destination with him sexually. So you have to think at some point you have to be tired of going limp in front of 10, 22 year old blonde girls who, you know, can't be happy to be there. It's so punishing and it's so indicative of, like you said, like how a nar- like a narcissistic delusional person he must have been because that can't be enjoyable for anyone. Like, let's drop the charade. That's what I mean. It's hard for me to relate to because I, I feel like naturally my my inclination is to think the worst things about myself and to be like, worried that I don't know what other people are thinking about me. So I like really cannot even put myself in the position of being a man who's taking Viagra and paying seven girls to have sex with him to be in a magazine and pretending that these are my legitimate girlfriends. Like that is so far removed from my train of thought, but you'd have to think at some point he'd say it's too much for even me. I can't keep lying to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I think once Kendra moved in, I think the sex nights were pretty much like just, just the three of them. I don't yeah. think there were as many, there still were like in Kendra's book, she talks about the only time she would have fun during the orgies is when there was a hot new playmate that was joining them and she'd just hook up with her. Yeah. But I think pretty soon after that, it was just the three of them. And I guess it's better to have your three closest watch you frantically try and get hard again instead of strangers. Um, so let's, Let's just kind of like go through the episode. Um, so the episode, like I said, they're they're on the cover of Playboy. So they're going to New York to do press. And we open, I feel like, in the same way that a million of these episodes open, where they're packing in the dead of night to get on a plane. I have a ton of questions about the packing. Kendra is outraged and actually says, quote, haters about being told she's only allowed two carry-ons. And then they are in the biggest private jet I've ever seen. And so right there, I have some questions. I don't know if you have answers, but maybe we can work through it together. One, (laughs) why couldn't she carry, have not a carry-on, but a regular size suitcase? Two, how much packing did she need for what I believe was a single night stay in New York? Three, Who is telling them to limit their carry-ons on a private jet that could fit 40? Here's another question to piggyback onto that is we see also Brian Alea, the house manager, packing all the food and stuff for, by the way, a six hour flight, probably less in a private jet. He's packing like 
five containers of dairy creamer, like non-dairy creamer for coffee, ice cream bars, tons and tons of food. And I'm just wondering, we can fit that. Is that why we can't have more than two carry-ons? Because the whole place is filled up with random food items? Like turkey sandwiches. I think it's like, we can't have, you can't bring a pair of boots. We have 1900 turkey sandwiches in the the (laughs) carry-on department. Yeah. I mean, I know that's his thing, but I was confused how many people, the, the amount of staff that goes into this trip did confuse me because it seems like you would really only need one single assistant to pull a suit and pack it. Yeah. I don't know why he has an entire seamster, which is what I think a boy seamstress is called. <laughs> um, I don't know why he needs a full-time seamster on his payroll in addition to like multiple butlers. I've never really understood the finances of the mansion. Hef ended his life with not tons and tons of money. And I think he really drained Playboy dry with all of the spending he did. And they had, they made him cut down on girlfriends spending and stuff like that. Yeah. It just seems so wild to spend all of that money on flying these people. Like does Mary really need to be there? Or what about his, like like the guy he was playing cards with, which I think is his brother. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many of these things seemed unnecessary or like they could have been done by one person. And I wonder who is the person in charge of getting them from point A to point B? Like who's who's the assistant? Because I don't think it's Mary. No. Who is Mary? Who do you think Mary is really? I think she is simply someone who Hef feels felt very comfortable with. And so she was... I think she was really just kind of like an enabler. Like he liked having someone who, you know, did her work. She was a secretary, answered the phones, told him what's up. And he just really trusted her and kept her employed. I also feel like because she was an older woman, woman, a lot of the young girls who were like looking for a maternal figure in the house would come to her and like idiots, they would tell her all their secrets. And she, she was have henchmen first and foremost. Yeah. I think it's interesting that everyone speaks so highly of her, um, you know, Kendra, Bridget. And yes. And I totally understand that. I think she was a mother figure to them. And I think it would be maybe too upsetting to them to like really realize that, you know, she was in Hef's pocket. 100%. And I wonder if that's why Hef liked her so much, because I wonder if as Playboy left Hef's purview and became more Playboy Enterprises, that she was one of the few people to stay loyal to the old guard. And like, that was her value to him is that she like Christine, his own daughter, I know, who ran Playboy was big on him cutting everything. And she she could see clearly that his business model did not work for the 21st century. And I wonder if Mary was the only person sitting there saying, no, I think it's good that you spend a million dollars a year on birthday parties. I think it's great that you've given every girl in LA a boob job. I think it's cool that, you know, we have 1700 turkey sandwiches on a one day trip to New York (laughs) City. Sure, we can't afford people employees salaries anymore. But what you're doing is important and good. (laughs) I feel like one of her main jobs was dealing with the girls. And she also definitely for years and years and years, was the one who would recruit new girls to come. I wonder if she was actually also someone who like Christy would say to her, okay, you need to convince half of this because 
X, Y, Z, this is not sustainable. Like you need to tell him that he needs to cut these corners and she would be the one to. That's really interesting. I mean, in Tori Spelling's memoir, there's like this shady figure who kind of comes out of nowhere. And when she's like beefing with her mom, he would come in and play both sides. And he very much was the person who'd be like, Tori, I'll get it done for you. I'll convince your mom. But meanwhile, he was saying the mom, I'll candy, I'll get it done for you. I'll convince. And really all he was doing was absconding with the fortune so I wonder if Mary had a bit of manipulation in it. And that's why the girls can't see it because nobody could see it. I wonder if she was the shystiest bitch at Playboy. <laughs> I do think, you know, she has more of an edge than anyone ever gave her credit for because she was this old woman. And I mean, in the uh, my last recap episode, my guest was like, oh, yeah, Mary was someone who could call up these young women and invite them to come and it would be non-threatening like oh this nice lady if she is co-signing yes she was very much like the fake face of it the allison williams of the playboy mansion yes i also think you have to remember that like she wasn't always an old woman when she started i think she was a young woman and for her to have held on to a career that tightly in an industry that was outwardly objectifying women at the time that she did, what was it in the 1950s then? Like, that is a tough broad. You know what I mean? She is somebody that came from a world where maybe this was her only option. And in order, I think, to stay in it, she had to be a tough lady. And oh, absolutely. So now we see this, like, softened old ver- woman version. But I think she's got, like, some grit in there, this kind of I'll-do-whatever-it-takes attitude. So on the, speaking of Mary and sex, on the private jet they take, of course, because Hef could never be in, in the gen pop of, of an airplane, even if it was in first class. They talk about joining the Mile High Club, which yeah. Mary has to explain to Kendra. You know, that's a time when you got to find the right partner and you join the Mile High Club. Ah! <laughs> What do we sign up? Where do we sign up? You have to recruit somebody. I was looking for volunteers, but no one. You recruited me. It's a sexual thing, Kendall. It is? If you get laid in an airplane, that's the Mile High Club. Oh, if you get laid on an airplane? Yeah. Well, maybe we could join the Mile High Club on the way home. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, can we even back it up before that? Because I think there was that really interesting and telling moment of... Bridget is saying, I want to join the Mile High Club. I keep trying to recruit people, but nobody's interested. And then they and they make it out like she's been looking at the plane who will have sex with her in the bathroom. They pan to Hef. He's playing cards with another old man, presumably his brother. And you're just sitting there going, like, the image it gives is that there are these hot, horny young women who are desperate for sex, but Hef is just too old to please or even get up or getting engaged with it. Yeah. And so that's how it reads, which is funny, because that's what you would think. You'd be like, yeah, all these hot young things, and you don't know what to do with them. And then and then it gets to the amazing part where Kendra's like, what is that? She just goes, I'll sign up. Where do you recruit? <laughs> and Mary, bored as hell, goes, Kendra. Kendra. <laughs> <a sex> thing. <laughs> yeah, I do think... Um, Mary in that scene, you can see the like grizzled young woman behind her eyes. The yeah. way she's just, you know, laid out on the seat, just really lounging. Like, oh, Kendra, it's when you get laid on a plane. Yes. And also her boredom with Kendra. Like she's, it was also shocking to know that Kendra didn't know what a Mile High Club was. She was a true 
Yeah. Get dick down girl. I mean, she was having sex in her childhood. I I think she probably had very rarely been on a plane. So plane culture was just, you know, not reaching her. Yeah. She had no idea about plane sex. That was like another (laughs) level. But if you, if she's going to know anything about a plane, I didn't think she would know how like planes get made, but I assume she would know about (laughs) the concept of having sex on one. Holly also says that she is a part of the Mile High Club. And I was listening to the commentary of this episode on the DVDs. And Holly does say for, for inquiring minds, Hef and Holly joined the Mile High Club the February before they filmed that when they were on their way to Orlando, which I'm guessing was on their way to Disney World. Yes. <laughs> what a place to do it on the way on the way to the happiest place on earth. Wow. So I guess my girl would have still been there because she didn't leave. Isabella St. James left that April of 2004. I guess this came out 2005. So maybe she wasn't there. But it's funny. That's like where it gets interesting to me because later when we get into the view interview and they talk about not liking when people ask them about sex, they are very happy to talk about their sex lives. And I understand it is different in like a gotcha interview versus a book. But in their books, they go into great detail about what it was to have sex with Hugh Hefner. And even on that, I mean, on that DVD commentary, I'm sure that was done within six months of the show coming out. Yeah. It's interesting that they would like refuse to say it on an interview, but they are happy to talk about it. Like it's not a secret. It was weird actually how all of a sudden they clammed up about it. It's almost like when they're filming at the mansion, they're like in their own little world. They kind of forget about what they're talking about, but being in like mixed company, they're suddenly very clammed up about it. I will say the view is like probably the absolute worst place to take these three women too. Yeah. I mean, that story about, they say that, that the first thing the women said to them when they came out onto the view is that, oh, do you always sit like this? But in reality, they had been given one chair that they all had to share. So they were kind of sitting on top of each other. And it's like, yeah, that's fucked up. You guys put them in that position with uh, this, that situation and then made fun of them. But I don't know. They are such an interesting like study in like, feminist discourse because I do think you could argue it both ways on the one hand it's like leave women alone these are the choices they made but on the other hand it's like I don't know there are bad choices that can be made by women (laughs) actually feminism is agreeing with women 100% of the I get that stop I get that comment sometimes on TikTok they're like how dare you tear down a woman I'm like this woman murdered somebody and they're like it's her right (laughs) slay queen (laughs) I'm like okay people scare me yeah, I I kind of get why they didn't want to talk about it on The View because it really pulled the narrative away from them because on their own show, they get to kind of just do it with a wink and a nod. It's, it's never like, well, how do you do it? It's mm-hmm. always very subtle and without judgment. And it's like, no, we, we all love each other. We're family. And I've, I mean, I don't even think that they speak too much about Kendra and Bridget having sex with them on the show. I think they kind of just like use innuendo. Mm -hmm. So I can see where if they don't share it on the show, it's not like being on um, a a different reality show where it's like, well, you open, it's not like being on Southern charm or something. It's like, well, you opened yourself up to this. So we get to talk about who you have sex with. It's like, we don't, normally talk about this. So I'm sure it is kind of jarring to have Joy Behar 
And I see that, but I, th- but I think the reasonable retort to that is that they were there to promote the cover of Playboy that they were all that, in that posing nude. That is a nude. very salient point. Because I just had this uh, disagreement with my friend who I, I watched the episode with, and she was saying that too. She's like, well, it's not, you don't get to just ask anyone about their sex lives. But I'm like, if I was on the cover of like Shape Magazine, and then I did an interview to promote it, and they asked me about my diet, and I got up there and was like, how dare you reduce a woman to her diet and weight? Like, that would be a little bit ridiculous. I feel the same way about the ask her more movement about red carpet events when they're like, stop asking women who they're wearing. And I'm like, I don't know. The whole point of a red carpet is it's like a fashion moment to celebrate, celebrate the designers who crafted your gazillion dollar outfit that 20 different people had input on. Like, I don't know. Sometimes there are times and places. And I think when you're wearing a billion dollar gown with hair and makeup, it's reasonable to say who should we give credit to. And I think when you're on the cover of a sex magic uh, publication, it's fair say who do you have sex with <laughs> yeah I, I think I, I think that Joy and Barbara were just such hard nosed bitches yeah. just in general that I'm sure a big part of it was just they they only wanted to have them on to dress them down and I think yes. they specifically they talk about so Kendra and Bridget go to go to Mary and they say we're really nervous about this. We don't want to talk about sex. And then Mary brings it to Hef and Hef's like, oh, the pre-interview woman was really nice to me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, of course she was because you're the the man in charge yes. and she doesn't want to tip you off that she's, that everyone's going to be really rude or judgmental. Not that they wouldn't go on anyway, but. No, and I think it's, and because it's funny because I'm like, well, why did they do The View? That's such a bad choice for them. But I'm like, I'm sure Playboy approached The View. I don't think The View approached Playboy. Like, that's not how it works. And I do think it's unfair that they'd give Hef a pass and not the girls. But I, it's, it's tough because I do think it's fair in general to ask them about sex. I don't think it's nice to come in wanting to make them look stupid. That's like, yeah. listen, give Kendra a couple minutes. She will make herself look stupid. You don't have to, like, push her hand. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I thought the same thing about why would they choose The View? And I think at that time, especially in the early 2000s, like there was no other option than The View. Mm-hmm. Like you had to be on The View. It was such a huge show. I don't I don't think this is in the episode. I think it's in the commentary. Apparently the next day on The View, they totally ripped the girls apart and they're calling them bimbos and sluts. So, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I do think that's wrong. Like, I don't think you need to be passing that judgment as a woman because, like, society is doing it. You don't need to help them out. I do see somebody like Joy Behar and, like, Barbara's frustration, though, that they've, like, fought their whole lives to be seen as whole people. And here are women who have made the conscious decisions to be, like, reduced to girlfriends. Yeah, it's very second wave feminism, I think. And also, they come from. The generation like Gloria Steinem, I mean, Gloria Steinem is a peer of Barbara Walters mm-hmm. and, you know, all of those women of that generation hated him if they were like a feminist. Um, they, they didn't, they didn't subscribe to like the sexual revolution. This is so great. This is, this is good for feminism. But it's, and but this wasn't, you know what I mean? Like this was not, I'm sorry, but I don't think any woman, I don't think one single 
any single wave of feminism sat and said, the dream is that one day 10, 20 year old women can sit around on the floor and wait for a 78 year old man to get hard and hope that you can hop on for 10 seconds while you pretend to make out with another girl so that he gets hard again. And that that's the, that's the future we all fought for, for that opportunity one day to not come and not even really get wet, but to line up and take your merry-go-round turn on some old limp dick. Like, I don't know anybody fought for that future. Claire, you don't think that that was progress? I'm so grateful to be given the opportunity to get herpes for the worst sex of my life. You know, in in our parents' days, they only had the option of being a secretary or a teacher. And this was the third option. Finally. Finally. Finally, we get that third option. But like, I mean, you were saying earlier, I think in Holly's book, she's like, why wasn't anybody asking if we need help? And I feel like I might have some problematic views on it, but I've now read three of their books. And if anything has come out of it to me, sorry, I know we're supposed to talk about the TV. This will be my last <laughs> no, no, topic no. thing. But if anything has come to me from it, it's that they all pretend that they were pursued or it like just happened. Like one thing happened after another and they just tripped into this lifestyle of being a girlfriend. They didn't know how to get out. If there's one thing I'm sure of is that every girlfriend in the house set her sights on being a girlfriend and like pursued it. Even Kendra, who was like, I don't know, I just showed up one day and Kef wouldn't stop, Hef saw my photo and wouldn't stop calling me. According to Isabella, that's not really how it went down. Like, you know what I mean? Like they all, I think they all knew it was a system. And I think it was all, they all thought it was a system that they could win. And then none of them really won it. And so it's hard for me to have, I think the sympathy that Holly is now calling for retroactively to be like, no, I was a poor, young, innocent girl who thought I was in love. And instead I was manipulated she had spent like five years prepping to get in Hef's view line and then did everything she could to like win that game. And then I do think she won. She came out with like three books, two TV shows. She's, you know what I mean? She got what she wanted, which is like fame, notoriety and money. And I don't know that. I, I don't know. I just feel, I don't feel bad that I don't think any of them went into it not knowing what would happen. I think they just all thought they'd be able to play it smarter. Yeah. I think I think they all equally pursued it. And I think with Kendra too, she, she plays it the most coy. And I also think because the Playboy brand really likes her the best because she knows where her bread is buttered, they never really push back against it. And I've seen actually some interviews with Hef where he really kind of backs up her version of events. And after Holly leaves, he he's kind of like rude about it. And he's like, yeah, she really wanted me. I was never attracted to her, blah, blah, blah. But I saw Kendra and I needed her right away. But yeah, according to Isabella's book, she knew exactly what she was doing. It wasn't like she just stumbled into working at the party. Like she, she pursued this and she, she was also like a hustler. Yeah. And I think Kendra played it the smartest because she was willing to be honest about what the situation is. Like, I have no problem with sex work. Like, if that's what you want to do, I, I just feel like she's the only person who came in and said, this is an opportunity for me to make some money, make a name for myself. I'll see what I can get. I'll see what I can get away with. And then when it doesn't work anymore, I'll leave. And that's what she did. And I think that's why she's the happiest. It was Holly who was trying to play this in-between game of like, no, we're really boyfriend, girlfriend. We might get married one day. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. And I think also with Holly, the problem was, is, and she kind of talks about this in her book, that at a certain point, if she were to just 
admit defeat, like, oh, this, I actually don't like what I'm doing here. It does make it like, oh, well, so you were like a bimbo and you basically prostituted yourself. And like, this was all for not like worried that that would be the, the backlash she would get when she, you know, with her tail between her legs, go yes. back to Alaska or goes back to Oregon. So I can see that as well, where she really had to delude herself. I think the shame really locked them in those situations because Holly and Isabella are so cruel about actual sex workers in their books. The way that they treat women who escorted, the way that they look in disgust at any woman who was too greedy or took advantage or escorted on the side or was looking for another sugar daddy. Um, Isabella has a friend, Emma, who's like, okay, this is about to come to an end. Who else could be my sugar daddy next? And Isabella is like disgusted by it. And it's like, well, Isabella, what are, what is heft to you? Like, yeah, they're so, and I think it is like the shame makes them so cruel and judgmental to the other girls. And that is why I'm like kind of anti Holly. I had a really hard time reading her book because she was so hateful towards the other woman. I thought she was so like, everyone thinks playboy girls are dumb. I'm not, but the rest actually are. And meanwhile, Isabella <laughs> had a fucking law degree. I mean, Isabella was there at the same time as Holly. And you can't say that Isabella, who graduated from Pepperdine Law School, is dumb. Like, objectively, you just can't say it. And so the fact that Holly was like, it was hard for me because it's such a tough situation. And it was hard for me because I felt manipulated. But all the other girls, they actually were just dumb bitches. And you're like, okay, Holly, how can you not extend that sympathy or that empathy to anybody else? It, like, really turned me against her. Yeah, the shame, really, they have to deflect and be like, well, I'm not like that. And I think it's kind of why Kendra and Bridget sometimes had a problem with Kendra because, um, you know, Kendra was the type of person they didn't want to be. And they knew that that's how people looked at them, that they were frivolous and stupid and laugh too loud and bimbos. I mean, Kendra did come straight from being a stripper. So she was exactly what Heff had like worked so hard to pretend none of these girls would ever be like, she was the accusation. She she was the exact type of person that they were all conspiring to pretend like was not Mm -hmm. a part of Playboy. Well, it's funny because I I feel like I'm like, well, they were essentially sex workers and that sounds judgmental, but I'm like, but I don't judge. I have no problem with sex work. Like if you see that as like a judgmental statement, that's on you. They were truly getting paid to have sex with him. I don't know how else to describe it. (laughs) Yeah, they were, I I guess because they used the word girlfriends, it's like they could kind of maneuver it as like your husband gives you money when you need it. If you're not working, who's the person who, you know, gives you money and like takes care of you? Like that's normal. And you also have sex with them. Is every non-working woman, you know, a prostitute? Yeah. But, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. But truly their value to Hef was their promotional abilities. It was the fact that more than being his girlfriend, they were promoting the Playboy image. They're, I see them as almost shot girls. Like they're around the clock promotional shot girls is essentially what yes. they were doing. That was, that was why it made sense to pay them and keep them on, on the payroll because they were doing promotional value. They were essentially the face of the brand. And when, when the seven girlfriends first first started coming onto the scene and in like 1999, 2000, I do remember seeing those pictures and kind of just assuming, Oh, these are basically like promo girls. Like, yeah, I never imagined they actually lived there. 
They were like um, Gwen Stefani's Harajuku girls. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I guess in theory, they're being posited as Gwen's friends. But I'm like, I never once thought they were all getting together for birthdays and gossiping about boy problems. I'm like, I hope they're being paid. Just like I hope those girls were getting paid. I hope um, the girlfriends are getting paid. I hope the Playboy, or not the Playboy, the Pussycat Dirt Girl backup dolls or whatever are getting paid. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. They have to get paid. paid. (laughs) I mean, sure. Would it probably be preferable if it was, you know, tax deductible? uh... I think the problem is they didn't unionize. I think the problem is they got paid like they were hourly workers. When I found out in Isabella's book that if they took a week to go visit family, they didn't get their $1,000 allowance that week. I was like, well, there's the problem. You guys need PTO. You need benefits. Like, you need to get Christmas off. Yeah, wear Christmas off. could not believe he made them spend Christmas with them. I have a boyfriend and I spend Christmas with my own family still. So that's not a. <laughs> yeah, that is so bizarre, especially because it's like, Hef, you do have a family. It's not as if this is some lonely man in a clock tower who has nobody else. No. He had a. Vi- I mean, he had kids across four the street. Kids, <laughs> kids across, two kids across the street who are still young. He had his older children. He had his brother. I mean, he did not need to keep seven women no. hanging around on Christmas. No, that was like so. They could have also very easily, a la influencers, staged those photos on December 20th and then released Absolutely. them to the public. On- Nobody is time stamping your Christmas. <laughs> and yeah, and it's so bizarre, too. I always thought it was really bizarre when Hef would mix his younger children with the girlfriends and stuff. And I can't imagine what his ex-wife was thinking when, when she would like come over for Christmas with the two boys. And it's like, and here are the seven girls that you have to pretend are like a part of your family or something. Yeah. And the fact that, did you read in Holly's book, she says they would sometimes sleep in the one girlfriend room that had three beds. Imagine you're a young boy (sighs) sleeping in your dad's 20 year old girlfriend's bunk bed. It's so strange. Um, Sorry, should we get back to the episode? I didn't mean to derail us with like questions of whether or not this is feminism. (laughs) No, listen, we have to ask these tough, tough questions, okay? This is a discourse. I do have a question for you. So you live in New York. Yes. And, you know, we get to see one of the... Greatest I mean, restaurants of all time. Is that what you're about to say? Yes. Um. I. I mean, it. It must have a Michelin star. At the, it's I where right? I would like to go for my birthday, but I can never get in. Uh, of course, the wait list is is three months long. Um, of course, we're talking about Jekyll. <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde is Bridget's favorite place in New York because it's all Halloween themed. Hey, let's get this freaky Frankenstein experiment rolling. <laughs> There's like freaky monsters and the maids come and dust you off and it's just a really, really cool themed restaurant. We had such a good time there. I'd like to take a little more time and explore your feminine self. I have actually been there in my life and I did go in sixth grade for a class trip style birthday party for one girl named Lauren. We all went in in a stretch limo that could only seat 12 of us, but there were 25 of us. We went in, we were 11 years old. Um, We were from New Jersey. I am from New Jersey. So when we were, I said we went in, we came in from a different state. And so if you're wondering who goes to Jekyll and Hyde, a bunch of 
11-year-olds from New Jersey. That is, I think, the target audience for that. I did not go there and say, oh, we're out of place. I went and said, this is who it's for. It's so funny to me how they're always trying to push this opulent lifestyle of like, oh my God, we're on our private jet. And then the one dinner reservation they have for this 24-hour trip is Bridget's favorite restaurant, Jekyll and Hyde's, which like how many times have times has Bridget even been to New York? And I feel like this is the only restaurant she goes to. I feel like she recommends it to her friends when they're visiting New York. She's like, oh, I love New York. You have to go to my favorite place. It's in this neighborhood. It's called Times Square. (laughs) Oh, good. You're staying in Times Square. Perfect. You could walk to it. And then after that, you can go to Bubba Gump's Strip Company, um, get a sweatshirt. Oh, they saw spam a lot. That was a tough ticket back in the day. That was a big ticket. I also could not imagine Hef and Kendra sitting through that. Oh, no. Hef was asleep for sure. And Kendra probably went to the bathroom and, like, put gum on the toilet in in the shape of a fuck you. Of course, Holly and Bridget, I'm sure, were absolutely tickled. They had their their little bunny puppet um, (laughs) that they clutched all the way home. I, I almost wonder if they kind of just showed them going in. And then they turned right back around and left. You know what I think they did? This is what I think happened. They went to the show and they left at intermission. That makes a lot of sense to me. Just the way they do with all parties. Yeah. They always leave early. They want the illusion of like, oh yeah, we're partying hard, but... I wish I knew that they had to leave every party early. When they left their own Playboy cover anniversary party early to get back on the plane so that they could not even get home in time for bed because they ended up sleeping on the plane. But when they left their own party early, that's when I was like, this is why it is just not worth it because there are so many perks to being girlfriend and you don't get to indulge in one single perk. No. And that is one thing too, where I feel like if you were a potential girlfriend, it wasn't until you were actually living there that you realized that all these perks you thought you were getting, you really weren't getting. Yes. And I do think that that is the, I like will give them this benefit of the doubt. I think he makes it sound way better than it is before you're a girlfriend, before you've paid the price of your freedom, all this free stuff does seem like free. And then of course you realize you've actually paid with your soul. And then I also (laughs) do think once you're in the house, you underestimate how little truly free time there is. Cause it seems like you're free until 9 PM, but actually half doesn't let you go do anything that would ever make you too busy to on the moment's notice, do like a photo shoot. Right. I like Holly and I actually, all three of them did like different classes and stuff, but yeah, I mean, they, they, I think that's only because of the TV show. I think that was only permitted because they need, he didn't need them around anymore to do like promo shoots. Now the promo shoot was being on the TV show. And so they were allowed to take classes because it like filled airtime. Well, Kendra actually, Kendra took classes before the show ever started. Like in the first episode where they show her in massage therapy school, Mm -hmm. that was actually after she had graduated. So she had graduated before the show ever started. And then, you know, of course never needed to actually uh, become a masseuse. Yeah. I mean, definitely a a different life for Kendra. So I think they did have downtime. They definitely had downtime, but like, I know that, you had to get special permission from Hef. And I think if you ever really wanted a job, it was very like, well, you can go two days a week for a couple of hours. Like, I think he made it a lot harder than it would seem on the outside to like take these outdoor lives. 
Yeah. And I think also like with Holly, her working at Hooters, once she showed that she was becoming independent with this job, like in the beginning, it wasn't threatening to have because she was just working for tips a couple days a week. But then when Hooters asked her to be a calendar girl or something, yeah, um, then Hef made her quit all of it because it was making her, it, it would make her too independent and able to leave whenever she wanted. Yes. Which, you know, is, is like the hallmark of an abuser. Yes. No, I mean, I do think that the, there was like this Island of Lotuses vibe, but the actual reality was much more sinister that when you tried to like make escape routes, he made it very difficult. Yes. But in a way that you couldn't put your finger on. Do you know what I mean? I don't think he ever outwardly said, no, you can't get a job. No, you can't go to school. But I do think he'd be like, oh, you were gone all day and we needed you. I hope you're never gone again when I need you at the last minute. And then suddenly you're like, okay. And Holly talks a lot about how he had, you know, crocodile tears and like, oh, you really hurt my feelings that you weren't there for this thing. And like, I'm sure. Yeah. I think a lot of it, I think he was a smart enough guy to know how to get around really looking bad because he was so obsessed with his image. So he, he knew how to get what he wanted without tipping his hand to the outside world or even to the women sometimes that yes. like he was pulling the strings and, and just manipulating them. And I think that's why Kendra was able to be so successful at the house because she's like unmanipulatable in the sense that she truly does not give a fuck about anybody but herself. Yeah. <laughs> like she, she doesn't care if he's crying and he knew that she didn't care. So he didn't even try to control her. Cause I think she was, she would have just said, I'll, I'll leave. Yeah. And Holly says to you in her book that um, uh, Kendra was the only one allowed to have an outside manager and do outside gigs once they got famous. And it's really just because Holly and Bridget would go with whatever Hef said. And he knew that. So it was just a matter of if they had been like, I'm doing whatever I want. Yeah. He he would have no choice, I think, but to let them. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have told them, okay, well, you have to move out. The show's over. No, never. And never. And that's where, like, I think it does get complicated. Because I do think Holly, like, went in to try to get him to fall in love with her. Like, you know what I mean? I don't think she went in. She didn't want to play at both sides. And that was her mistake. She never wanted to give anybody the ability to be like, well, you're just in it for the money. So she pretended to be in love with him and, like, made herself in love with him. And then because of that, she was in this vulnerable position where he was really able to, like, torment and control her. Whereas Ken- Kendra was like, I don't care what you call me. I'm here to, yeah, I'm here to get money and then I'm going to leave. And she did. <laughs> yeah. Holly allowed herself to really buy into the, yeah. into the whole world. Whereas Kendra always had one foot at the door and he knew that. And Bridget, I feel like Bridget was somewhere in between them because Bridget also could have done the things that Kendra was doing and gotten away with it, but she was still so worried about making him mad or making him unhappy, but she still had an awareness. Like if you watch her, um, her screen test for the girls next door, it's, it's on the DVDs. She talks about how like, Oh, this is great because I just feel like I have a lot of stuff to keep me busy. I like to do arts and crafts and creative things. And I'm taking this opportunity to try and pursue all those little things that I couldn't do if I had a normal career and life back home. I think Bridget, is deeply conniving and got exactly what she wanted. She's one of the few women on earth who like 
wanted exactly what she signed up for. Because, I mean, in Isabella's book, she goes into it more than either Kendra or Holly, but I didn't realize she was married when she was at the mansion. That she had, according to Isabella, she had been given one year by her husband to go try and make it in LA. He was footing the bill for her to like give it her all. She was dating a manager who Isabella said a lot of people dated, hoping that he would connect them. She moved from the manager to half. She like wiggled her way in by kind of being Holly's lieutenant. And she's the only one who didn't go on to do more, really. I guess she has her ghost podcast. But I think Kendra and Holly had bigger ambitions. But all Bridget really wanted to do was just have the day to herself. And she fucking got that. (laughs) So she was, like, happy as a clam. And how can you blame her? Like, honestly, I I don't know. Maybe I would do the same thing just to, you know, do my crafts. Yeah. uh, I guess if I love crafting that much. And call it a night. (laughs) I wish I could be that satisfied by a Sudoku. (laughs) Claire, do you have any other thoughts on the episode, thoughts on Girls Next Door? I mean, this is this is really an interesting guest to have because I've never had a guest that has had your perspective. So it's nice having Oh, a no. Am I, did I sound like a, a slut-shaming hater? <laughs> no, you didn't. You didn't. But I think, I think most of the people I've talked to have had the same opinions across the board. And, it, you know, it's nice having having an, uh, another side to the to the discussion. I guess, and I feel like because I've read the books and I've seen the way they've judged each other and I've been able to, I'm very critical when I read their books of like, what is the narrative they want to spin about themselves? And maybe this is super progressive of me, but I, I do somewhat reject the notion that all women are just dumb, poor little idiots who show up in situations <laughs> and then get manipulated beyond their control and like have no say in their own future. I think people make choices sometimes that are bigger than what they realize. Like they bite off more than they can chew and it's unfair. And I think Hef is truly a bad person. Like I think he's like a disgusting man who's like, I don't think your whole life should ever be about having sex with 10, 20 year olds. So he's disgusting, (laughs) but I do, I don't know. I don't think it is as simple as these poor innocent girls got just abused and gaslit by Hef. I think they like went in and it was bad, but I think they went in thinking they could come out on top. There was, you know, there's nuance. There. <laughs> and, and you know what? They did. They did come out on top. I mean, if Kendra wasn't on top, then why did she have a TV show called Kendra on top? <laughs> I mean, listen, it's Holly's world. Kendra's yeah. on top, like the world at their feet. <laughs> and Bridget's still doing, still doing crafts. So, and Hef is dead. So who won? <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope everybody doesn't hate yeah. me. No. Um, tell everyone where where they can find you. Well, my podcast, if you want to hear more women-hating perspectives, is <laughs> Celebrity Memoir Book Club. And then um, my Instagram is Claire the Scare. And that's pretty much everywhere I am. There's other places, but those are the main ones. Well, actually, like, what's your physical address? Because literally people want to be able to Can I tell you, um, you're really tricking me right now because I did used to always give my physical address on my podcast. And then finally someone had to be like, you have to stop doing that. You're going to get murdered. You did? Um, I used to really have this idea that nobody was listening. And as as our new podcast is kind of blown up, I had to be like, oh, no, 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 no. Thousands of of people are listening. Like, I cannot keep hurting myself. So... Now, so not this time. This, like, <laughs> was this like in case people wanted to um, 
send their thoughts and questions like via snail mail. Well, the problem was is because this guy I knew lived literally across the street. And then to drive home how close he lived to me, I would give both of our addresses to prove that we were just like (laughs) one number off from each other. So he really was across the street. And so it wasn't even for my safety. People were like, you can't keep giving that man's address. He has been on TV. <laughs> like he was like a comedian with TV credits. And they were like, you are going to get him murdered. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're not giving out addresses anymore. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't trick you into just like spilling that out. But I did recently find out that my phone number was on the phone button on my Instagram. So until oh, no. like a few weeks ago, you could have just gone to my Instagram and then from there called me. And honestly, if you called me and asked for my address, I would have just given it to you on the phone. <laughs> I'm very accessible. <laughs> well, you know, you have to be accessible in this day and age. You know, the fans want to get to you. Call me, beat me if you want to reach me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Claire, this was so fun. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun.